This is the fifth in a series of talks by Joel on devotional practices, titled Devotion 5, Unceasing Prayer, recorded October 20th, 2005, at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. Okay, so, when we practice prayer in the heart, on a regular basis, doing formal practice, you know, maybe once, twice, even three times a day if you can, then eventually you get to the point where you can rendezvous with your beloved on more or less regular basis. Not always. Some days you'll be so distracted by what's going on, you know, in your life that you won't be able to practice it very well. But more or less on a regular basis, you will be able to In that practice, enter into the spiritual heart. That's where you really start to contact the beloved. You find the love and the longing in the emotional heart, but it's when the distractions start to recede and you're able to transform some of those other negative emotions into that love and longing and so forth. And then you start to feel you are in the beloved's presence. You're actually with the beloved now. You're rendezvousing with the beloved. And if you continue that for a while, as we said last night, you even start to get glimpses of the beloved throughout the day. But after a while, you start to want to enjoy the beloved's company all the time, not just intermittently. So, you know, this is like a human relationship. You fall in love and uh, you start going out on dates and maybe you spend more time together. You go away on vacations and stuff like that. But if it's deepening the relationship, pretty soon that's not satisfactory. You want to get married. You want to be with the beloved all the time. So the same thing happens in an unfolding relationship with the divine beloved. And in most traditions, that goal is called union with God, union with the beloved. You want a permanent union, not just the intermittent encounters. When this happens, it means you're ready for the next stage of devotion, which is the constant remembrance of the beloved, even in the midst of all your everyday activities. Here's uh, what Anandamayama says. His presence and the remembrance of him must be sustained unceasingly. Unceasingly. And you'll find the same thing in all the traditions. The Hasidic master, Menachem Nahum, gives this advice. Attach your thought always to the creator. Do not turn it away even for a moment to think of the vanities of this world. As soon as you turn your thought elsewhere, you are considered an idolater. You know, in Judaism, as in Islam, that's probably the worst thing you can do, to uh, worship something else other than God. So the idea here is that if you are looking for happiness in other things, in worldly things, that makes you an idolater. You're putting something else in God's place because only God can bring you happiness. And notice he says, if you turn away even for a moment to think of the vanities of this world, it's not that you never think of anything going on in this world. You know, if you have a child and and your child comes to you and says, you know, when are we going to have dinner? You don't say, go away, kid. I can't think about dinner. I just got to think about the creator. (laughs) That's not being spiritual. That's being very self-centered, in fact. But what he means is when we get lost in thoughts about the world, thinking that the world is going to make us happy, the vanities of the world, the vanity of thinking that anything in the world is going to make you happy. And the same thing, again, is true in all traditions. Here's the Sufi imam, I'm sorry, I'm butchering this, Zinul Abedin. Does that sound... Oh, okay, not too bad, I'm getting better. And uh, he says... And this is a prayer. O Lord, 
busy our hearts with remembrance of you above all other remembrances and occupy our tongues with thanks to you above all other thankfulness. O Lord, open my heart to your loving kindness and fill me with your remembrance. So it's the same idea of constantly remembering the beloved. Now, this is the equivalent in the bhakti path of the jananas cultivating mindfulness throughout the day. So just as if you're a janani, you practice formal meditation during set periods, and you develop a mindfulness in the meditation on your pillow or in your chair, and then you try to carry that out into the world so that you have that mindfulness with you no matter what you're doing. So a bhakti does the same thing with formal prayer in the heart practice. You learn it in a formal situation and you perfect it in the formal situation, but then you try to carry it out with you in the rest of your day. So that remembrance of the divine that you are awaking, arousing, that love and longing for the divine in your formal practice, you try to continue throughout the day. And, of course, for both Jananis and Bhaktis, the big obstacle to doing this is that old story of I. Particularly when you get involved with daily activities. It's one thing to be sitting there quietly in a room by yourself doing your practice, whether it's meditation or prayer in the heart and so forth, with minimum distractions. But once you leave that situation and you go into this environment with all these distractions, the stimuli, the phones start ringing, the kids start screaming, you know, the colleagues at work demanding things and all that. It's very hard to maintain that and your attention just gets caught up in all these dramas, one after another after another. We've all experienced this, I think. I don't think I'm telling you anything new here. So it's the same thing happens with Jananis and Bhaktis. So then the question is, for a bhakti now, how to interrupt this story of I, how to remind ourselves in the midst of all this, pay attention to the beloved. Pay attention to the beloved. Don't forget the beloved. Don't forget what you're really here for. Don't forget the real source of your happiness, even in the midst of all this busy activity. So then how can we do this is the question. And there are, in fact, a number of ways. First of all, if you live in a sacred society, sacred societies usually have built into them throughout the day reminders, communal reminders for everybody. So if you are in a Christian society, particularly Catholic, you will have church bells going off periodically all day long. So when I used to visit my mother down in San Miguel in uh, Mexico, it was really beautiful. Throughout the day, the church bells would start ringing. And you would be talking to somebody or doing the dishes or out shopping or, you know, whatever, and here they're ringing. And you don't have to stop what you're doing, but it's just a reminder if you take it that way. I'm sure a lot of people in San Miguel, they learn to just ignore the church bells. But they're there if you want to tune in and take them as a reminder. In Islam, there are five ritual prayers are to be said every day, and there's the call to prayer. You know, again, this is a reminder. In uh, Buddhist uh, societies, they have temple bells. And I don't know how they work or, you know, how regular they are or whatever. But I do know, particularly for monks, the temple bells always summon you to come to do the meditation practices and whatnot. And then, you know, all sacred societies are filled with rites and rituals and prayers and stuff that have to be said in conjunction with all the normal activities of the day. And again, we get some of that left over, let's say, in a Christian society where you usually say grace before meals. But there are all sorts of prayers and stuff associated with harvest time or fishing or whatever you're doing. There are, you know, spiritual things to go with it which again are reminders of the sacred nature of this life. 
So we unfortunately live in a uh, secular society and uh, we don't have those kinds of reminders, but we can create our own. You know, you can wear some sort of jewelry that's sacred to you. Well, the Christians do that. They'll maybe wear a little cross as a little reminder, or you could wear a bracelet or something. Uh, you could post notes throughout your house and at the workplace, you know. Just remember, it could be. So, you know, you, uh, you get in your car in the morning on the dashboard thing. Remember, oh, yes, okay. You get to work, you open a drawer, oh, remember, right? We had a practitioner in our practitioners group named Bonnie years ago, and she worked at a hospital. And hospitals are a place of high drama, as you can ask Levon and some people who work in those situations here, where it's very easy to get lost in what's going on. Because, you know, these sometimes are situations of life and death and emergencies and crisis and all that. So she would set her watch chime to ring on the hour, and she took it like a church bell or something. Ding. Oh, remember. Ding. So every hour throughout the day, she'd have her own little private church bell or temple bell dinging. So we can be inventive in terms of doing that. That's one thing to do. Perhaps a more powerful practice is to carry on a continuous conversation with the beloved all day long. This was the primary practice of Brother Lawrence, a famous Christian mystic, and here's what he says about it. We need only to recognize him present within us, to speak with him at every moment, and to ask for his help, so that we will know his will in perplexing events, and will be able to carry out those things we clearly see he asks of us offering them to him before doing them and thanking him afterward for completing them. During this continual conversation, we are thus taken up in praising, adoring, and ceaselessly loving God for his infinite goodness and perfection. So, really what this is doing is substituting the conversation that you have in your head all day with yourself with a conversation with God. So your self-conversation, you are the star of that little drama, and it's all about what you want and what you don't want and how you can get what you want and how you can avoid what you don't want and all this and da-da-da-da. So you don't change that, and we all know how impossible it is to even try to suppress it if you try to suppress it. But so let's transform it. Okay, so it's going on anyway. So instead of talking to yourself, talk to God. And you ask God, so what do you want me to do now? Oh, do the dishes? Okay, sure, I'll do the dishes. I'll make this as an offering to you. I'm doing the dishes for you, God. And then when you finish the dishes, it's interesting, he said, you thank God for completing them, and you thank God first for allowing you to complete it. This was such an honor to do the dishes for you. But at a deeper level, it is recognizing that maybe you're not even doing the dishes. God is doing the dishes through you, and you thank God for doing the dishes. You know, you can find deeper and deeper levels of this. But in general, what's happening is you still have a story going, But instead of you being the star of the story, now God is the star of the story and you're playing a supporting role, right? So it shifts everything from me and what I want to what the beloved wants. So it's something you might want to try. The most common method, however, practiced by mystics of all the traditions, is what the Eastern Orthodox Christians call unceasing prayer. But again, that just happens to be their particular word for it, but you'll find it in all traditions. Here's what Ananda Maima advises. While attending to your work with your hands, keep yourself bound to him by sustaining japa, the constant remembrance of him in your heart and mind. And here is the Eastern Orthodox Christian, Father Philemon. 
Whether you eat or drink or talk to someone outside your cell or on the way somewhere, do not forget to recite this prayer with a sober and attentive mind. So this is obviously addressed to monks, and they're in their cells, but even monks have to come out to go to the uh, dining hall and eat, and you have to go talk to people and uh, go to town occasionally and come back. So he's saying, no matter what you're doing, it doesn't matter, you're doing all these activities, you still keep that remembrance of God. Here's what Rumi says. Whether asleep or awake, writing or reading, in all your states you should never be empty of the remembrance of God. Rather, you should be one of those who are constantly at their prayers. And that's taken from the Quran, I believe. There are lines about being constantly at your prayer. So he's saying, yes, let's take this literally. What would it mean if you were constantly at prayer? So the essence of this is really to continue repeating your sacred word or your phrase or your mantra after you finish your formal practice and continue to do it. Carry it on into your activities. So it is difficult. It isn't easy to do. But particularly at the beginning, very few people can just, you know, get up from their pillow or their chair and walk out into the world and just do unceasing prayer without any effort. Here's what the anonymous author of an Eastern Orthodox little booklet called Way of the Pilgrim says about his first attempts to do this with the Jesus prayer. And he was just a layperson. And we don't know much about him. I mean, he's an anonymous author and he doesn't give you any biographical information in the book. But he's at church one day and he hears uh, something from the Gospels being read. I think it was St. Paul. And St. Paul talks about unceasing prayer. And it suddenly grabs him. What does that mean? Does that mean literally praying, you know, all the time? So he found a starts and a starts in uh, Russian is a spiritual master. Am I pronouncing that right, Alan? Yeah, actually, it's this uh, tradition of going to old monks who live all by themselves. It's called Stait. Stait. is a person. And Stachestvo is this whole tradition of communicating with those old wise people living out by themselves. And like a hermit. I've heard about this, what you're talking about, Jesus prayer. Yes. So I can recite it in Russian? Sure, yes. It sounds... Господи Иисусе Христе, Сыне Божий, помилуй меня грешного. Господи Иисусе Христе, Сыне Божий, помилуй меня грешного. So this tradition is one of the mystical parts of the Russian Orthodox Church, and it's actually discouraged for laymen to start practicing it unless you have your own wise old man to guide you. So I have never been part of this tradition, but I have been with people who were kind of inquiring into this prayer, and they were not advice to start it on, on their own. Right. So he did. And that's that's actually good advice, generally speaking, that you should have a teacher. Almost all traditions advise you to go find a teacher if you want to go on this path because uh, there, it's easy to get misled if you're trying to stumble along by yourself. And I can speak from experience. See, everybody says, well, you didn't have a teacher, but I did have a teacher. I had Athena. Well, that doesn't count. Well, believe me, <laughs> it counted. <laughs> In any case, thank you for, for that added thing. So this is not just a priest, but specifically a teacher of mystical practices, a wise old hermit sort of person who's done these practices. So he found a starts, and he went to the starts, and actually the starts said, oh, what a blessing that you stumbled on this, and that you're asking this question. This is great. Certainly, I will teach you. So he taught him the Jesus prayer. And the pilgrim was at the time working as a gardener in some estate. So he had a little hut that he lived in and he worked as the gardener. So here's what he said about the practice. For a week, alone in my hut, I steadily set myself to learn to pray without ceasing, exactly as the starts had explained. At first, things seemed to go very well. But then it tired me very much. I felt lazy and bored and overwhelmingly sleepy and a cloud of all sorts of other thoughts closed around me. 
I went in distress to my starts and told them the state I was in. Now, one of the reasons I read you this, when we start doing this practice, if you start feeling tired and bored and a whole cloud of other thoughts start closing in, well, you're in good company. Guess what? It happens to almost everybody. So note this, because everybody always gets discouraged. And note, when he started off, it was great. This is true of almost all spiritual practices we do. In the beginning, it's a novelty. Oh, goody, something new. And so the mind is very interested, you know, for about, I don't know, 30 minutes or whatever. (laughs) And then, okay, what else you got to show me? You get bored with that and you want something else. So for most practices, you need the most discipline up front, usually. So how do we actually get into this practice? There are a couple of variations of this. One is often the person who's teaching it will recommend starting with a certain number of repetitions, a set number, and then you do those, and then you increase them gradually and increase them more and more and more. So you work into it slowly. And that, in fact, is exactly what the pilgrim starts recommended to him. He recommended starting with 3,000 a day, and I don't know what he worked up to, 10,000 or something. But Here's what the pilgrim, uh, he's continuing to talk about what happened to him when he got the star's advice. He says, for two days I found it rather difficult, but after that it became so easy and likable that as soon as I stopped, I felt a sort of need to go on saying the prayer of Jesus, and I did it freely and willingly, not forcing myself to it as I had done before. So this is very interesting because this is an example of applying right effort. Not too much, not trying to overdo it, and not too little. Not forcing yourself beyond your capacity so it all turns uh, distasteful to you, but having enough discipline to make sure you're really getting into the practice And if you've ever done meditation practice, this is this whole business of tuning the guitar. You need just enough effort to sustain the practice, but not too much effort that you're overdoing it. And so it's like a guitar string that you find that place between when it's too loose, the note is flat. When it's too tight, the note is sharp. So we're adjusting the practice to uh, find that right amount of effort. And what he discovered, fortunately for him, rather quickly, not everybody discovers it so quickly, but you do it enough and then you stop the effort because you've done your 3,000 repetitions. Oh, but it draws you to do more and then it becomes pleasant to do. A lot of Sufi masters recommend to their students, their disciples, that they take up a zikr practice and they do it right after each ritual prayer of the day. And in Islam, the ritual prayers are more or less set. I mean, you don't get to make up your own prayers. They're they're prescribed with some variations and stuff. So you do that. Let's say you wake up in the morning and you do the morning prayer, and then you have your zikr. So you say, la ilaha illallah, let's say. And you repeat that, and you repeat that, and you start repeating that. And the idea is ultimately to try to repeat it all the way to the next prayer. The next one's noon, noon okay then you would you know keep going and and to the mid-afternoon is it uh, yeah and of course if you start saying it and you leave the mosque or wherever you're doing the prayer and you go out in the street and you start getting involved in the business of the day and then you forget it but when noon comes around and there's your noon prayer oh you remember you start it up again and then you go a little farther and then you forget it and then each time you have your formal prayer, that is a reminder to continue with the zikr. So it's like connecting the dots almost, you know, slowly but surely you extend it longer and longer. And, you know, after a while, you have a continuous stream of prayer running between these points of formal prayer that you're doing. So we have here, fortunately, these periods of formal practice that we do. When we get up in the morning at 6.30, and then when we practice now in the morning session, and then the afternoon session, and the evening. So 
We'll make use of that while we're here. And from each session, we will try then to continue unceasing prayer until the next session. So let's do a little prayer in the heart. And when we finish the morning session, when we leave here, you'll get up and you'll just continue your practice. And then you'll go to lunch and somewhere along the line, you'll forget it. But then you'll remember it. And then you start up again. And you go as long as is, you know, comfortable without straining yourself with a little attention, a little effort, and you'll forget it again. And then you pick up. And if you've totally forgotten it by the time you come back here for the afternoon session, well, we'll be picking it up here. So that, you know, will pick you up. Okay. If you'd like to follow our format, stop your player now and practice until you're familiar with these instructions. Then start your player again and continue with the program. Here's what Bishop Ignati of the Eastern Orthodox Church writes about the practice. Unceasing prayer leads a man into holy simplicity, weaning his mind from its habit of diversity in thought and from devising plans about himself and his neighbors, keeping him always in scantiness of humility of thoughts. This composes his training. He who prays ceaselessly gradually loses the habit of wandering thoughts, of distraction, of being filled with vain worries, and the more deeply his training in holiness and humility enters the soul and takes root in it, the more he loses these habits of mind. So, unceasing prayer starts to really weaken this story of I, not just in your formal practice, but if you continue the prayer practice into your daily uh, life and continue to do it among all your busy activities, it's not that the activities stop. In fact, we've already learned ways you can convert the activities into service for the beloved. But it's that story of I that gets weakened and starts to gradually drop away. And this is what opens us to the spiritual heart. And so as we talk about it in bhakti terms, more and more we enter the spiritual heart and we live in the spiritual heart. And the more we enter the spiritual heart and the more we live in the spiritual heart, 
the more we come into the presence of the beloved. And now what started as a feeling of love and longing in the heart starts to be reciprocated. We start to feel loved. There's less of a sense of longing and there's more of a sense of basking in the presence of the beloved. And the reason is because I said in the very beginning, our very love and longing for the divine is the divine's outflowing love of creation. But under delusion, we don't realize that. Under delusion, what we experience is a big hole in the cosmos and in our heart. The reality is veiled to us. Something's missing. And we know that intuitively, deep, deep down. That's why we grasp. That's why we reach out. That's why we're greedy and all those things. There's a core of wisdom in all those so-called negative emotions that wants, 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 and rightly so. The trouble is what it thinks it wants, wants, wants doesn't exist. And that is all the objects and people of this apparent world. All that really exists is the divine. But the more we begin to glimpse the divine, sense the divine, experience the divine, oh, the more the longing aspect of that falls away and it's converted into this love. And the love is a two-way street. So now there's an experience not only of longing for the divine, but of being drawn to the divine. And attention itself is drawn to the divine. Here's how Catherine of Genoa expresses it. As the soul feels itself being drawn upwards, the soul feels itself melting in the fire of that love of its sweet God. And by the way, uh, when Christian mystics use the word soul here, it's really uh, equivalent of the spiritual heart. It's another way of talking about the spiritual heart. It's that deepest part of yourself that is really pure consciousness. And they say that God lives in the soul and ultimately the soul and God are one. They're made of the same things, so to speak. Consciousness. So, this experience that Catherine described of melting into this love is extremely common. I read you uh, earlier in the retreat uh, something from Lali Shori, where she talked about feeling like she was melting in the fire of yoga and all her impurities burned away. And this is a very common image, the sense of this fire of this love burning away the impurities and so forth. And it's not an exaggeration. Not all seekers on a mystical path feel this kind of very intense experience, certainly, and not even all bhaktis will feel it this intensely. But this is not just some sort of, you know, poetic embellishment. Now, the more you feel this, and not just the heights and the peaks of ecstasy, but the more you feel this love drawing you in your life in general, the more you naturally become detached from all the old things that used to hook you. Here's the way Nandamayama explains it. In the measure as one loves God, detachment from sense objects ensues. To concentrate on God means to become drawn towards him. And detachment means becoming disentangled from sense objects. Feeling pulled towards the divine and indifferent to sense objects occurs simultaneously. Renunciation happens of itself. There is no need to give up anything. This is real, genuine renunciation. 
So this is what I said a couple times on the retreat. This is the great advantage of the bhakti path. The janani attains detachment through methodical analysis and insight into the impermanence and the emptiness of all the phenomena that he or she starts off being attached to. So we go through these exercises, as many of you have done before on retreat, where we enter a state of choiceless awareness and we see how everything arises and passes and we see how what we think is a gong, uh, when we really get down to examining very carefully, there's no real gong there. There are sights there, there are sounds, touches, smells, tastes and all that, but we can never find any gong in the midst of that. And all those phenomena, the sights, the sounds, the touches, and so forth, they're all dissolving away very rapidly. There's nothing in there to hang on to. And when you actually experience that, you get a direct experiential insight into that, oh, that tends to weaken then the grasping after things because they don't really exist. So, you know, usually when you discover you're trying to do something that cannot be done, you give it up. So it works, but it's a more methodical, painstaking practice that requires more effort in the sense of you have to really sit down and you have to do these practices and you have to concentrate intensely to get to that place where you have direct insight. But for the bhakti, detachment comes about because the spiritual love you're experiencing and the spiritual consolations and the spiritual favors, to use these bhakti terms, far outshine anything you can experience in terms of worldly pleasure. Worldly pleasures just pale in comparison. So if you have been, uh, I don't know, brought up on cheap Hershey's milk chocolate and somebody gives you really fine Swiss chocolate, and you taste that, you no longer care about the milk chocolate. Do you know what I mean? You don't have to give up the milk chocolate. You don't have to make an effort. You don't have to analyze it. You don't have to convince yourself. Who wants it anymore? And again, this is like falling in love with a human being. If you are really deeply, passionately in love with another person, you don't want other partners. You're not tempted by other partners. All that comes later. (laughs) It's true though, right? You don't have to make any effort to be faithful. So it's really the parallels between a human love relationship and a divine love relationship are actually quite close. The only difference is human lovers, if they don't break your heart, they still aren't going to give you true, complete, permanent happiness but your divine lover can. And there's another thing to say about this stage in a bhakti path. As we talked about in the very beginning, janatis tend to look down on bhaktis in general. Uh, They think they're kind of naive, maybe childlike. Uh, Their practices smack of exoteric religion. They're not very serious in the same way, you know, janatis are. But they never realize that bhaktis who have reached this stage look at them and laugh. They see these stagio people poring over texts and, and analyzing things in detail. And to them, the divine is all around. It's inside. It's outside. What are you doing? Come out of your library. Come out of your study. Open your eyes. Hear the whole world sing Om Namah Shivaya. Oh, pay a little attention. Oh, well, let's see. I've got to analyze the, the gong. And this. <laughs> so, mutual misunderstanding goes on on both uh, sides here. Yes? Well, one thing, you're, I know you're apparently talking about a stage of the bhakti practice, but there can be, can there, long, long dry spells like St. Teresa and Ravila experience just none of this, you know, love that drew her in. She just kept at it and kept at it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I've said this a number of times. The bhakti path tends to be very volatile. So this is the hills and the valleys here, and we're talking about being on top of the mountain or 
close to the top of the mountain anyway. And this will vary for different people. So we're compressing this into typical kinds of patterns, and for each person, it will unfold a little differently. So, uh, both Christians and Islamic mystics talk about this stage of entering the spiritual heart, not just glimpses and entering a little bit coming out, but when you're really more or less living all the time in the spiritual heart as a stage of spiritual poverty. And what they mean by that is that in this stage, almost all of our possessiveness towards worldly things has dropped away. And in point of fact, if you were impoverished, it wouldn't bother you. You would have no attachment to not being impoverished. And in fact, some mystics have sought out actual external poverty. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi, but there are also uh, Sufi mystics who have done that. But really the meaning is an inner meaning. So it's the opposite meaning of when we say a culture is impoverished, a spiritually impoverished. Usually what we mean is they don't have much spirituality. So this has a, a precise technical meaning. So I have to make that clear before I read you uh, Rumi's next quote. He says, When you enter the world of poverty and practice it, God bestows upon you kingdoms and worlds that you never imagined. You become ashamed of what you longed for and desired at first. You say, Oh, given the existence of something like this, how could I have sought after such trifles? So again, he's expressing the effect that these consolations and graces and experiences have on you. All that grasping and attachment that you had for worldly things, as Ananda Mayama said, you don't have to work at dropping them. They just fall away. So I read you this stuff, not because I think that after, what, five days of practicing prayer in the heart and five hours of unceasing prayer, all of you have entered into the stage of spiritual poverty by any means, but it's to inspire you. And so if you are struggling away here with unceasing prayer and thinking, oh my God, this is a lot of toil, the way our uh, Eastern Orthodox pilgrim did at first, then this is important. It'll give you encouragement. Hopefully it'll awaken some curiosity in you about what are these mystics talking about and get you to keep practicing, which is what we are going to do for the rest of the day here, is keep practicing unceasing prayer. We're going to practice it the rest of the day, and we're going to practice it through dinner, and we're going to practice it through the evening, and we're going to practice it all night long. <laughs> and we're going to practice it in the morning until the morning session. And... Because the point of the practice is to be able to do it outside of your formal practice, we're going to practice solo this afternoon. We're going to start with one session of formal practice to sort of get the pump primed and the love and longing flowing. And then we're going to go our separate ways and practice at our own rhythm, at our own pace. And I would suggest that you mix informal practice with little periods of formal practice where you may be wandering around. Maybe you take a walk through the woods and then you come to some place and maybe you're starting to really lose the prayer and you're having difficulty uh, remembering. And so you might sit down on a log and then do a little formal practice to get it back and then continue on and go at your own pace. And to make this even juicier as a field of practice for you, uh, I talked to the Cloud Mountain staff, and Kim has some tasks that she does around here. Mostly, I think they're gardening stuff that if any of you are interested in volunteering for, you could do about an hour's worth of work, and you could get a chance to try to practice unceasing prayer while you're engaged in some activity. So especially a simple little activity is nice because a lot of you are going to go back to the world and you're going to have complex activities, you know, and so forth. So if we can practice in a situation with simple little manual activities, that's a help. So that's an option for you here. All right, let's do our one round of formal practice. 
Afterwards, we'll go our way, try to keep it up through whatever activities you engage in, uh, try to keep it up through dinner, and if you forget it and then you remember it, no fuss, no argument, no guilt, no beating up on yourself. You just remember it, so just resume it. It's so simple. Okay. If you'd like to follow our format, stop your player now and practice until you're familiar with these instructions. Then start your player again and continue with the program. So we've been trying to do this unceasing prayer practice and uh, I would like to get a little feedback, but don't give me a full report or anything that's happened to you. Uh, just ask a question or make a, you know, a comment about how the practice is going. Yes. I thought it was a good uh, practice to do some work. Did you um, volunteer for some work? Yeah. It was just a, you know, a different sense of, you know, you you can't imagine yourself back out in the world and, and it's just good practice to kind of, you know, the mind's a little more active and you get to try to find some spaces to be a little more quiet. And, and it was just, I thought it was a good, uh, good tool to, to use. Good. All right. Good. That's, I'm glad to get that feedback. If we do this kind of treat again, we'll do that maybe even a little bit more because, you know, it's like a little bit being in a halfway house. When you get out of the nut hut, you know, they put you in the halfway house to get used to going back to the world. <laughs> Thank you though, for that feedback. I, and I think that's uh, very true, just the way you described it. You have, you have to make a little bit more adjustments. and It's not quite the same as just doing it when you have nothing else to do. It's a little different. Yeah. Um, I found um, just the word ceaseless prayer is almost intimidating. And uh, so I found it easier just to break it into chunks, discrete chunks of time. And like, I walked from here down to the dining hall. And could I maintain ceaseless prayer in that chunk of time? And then in the dining hall, could I maintain ceaseless prayer? So it takes a lot of the... Um, Pressure because it's like God forever ceaseless prayer. It's like <laughs> how can I possibly do that? Um, but if, if I can divide it up in pieces, it makes it easier. Excellent observation. Excellent. That's precisely what I did when I was cultivating mindfulness at work. I mean, I would try to get through the whole drive to work. You know, that was the first step. And would I lose it halfway in the drive or something? And for me, it worked very well that way. And I think that's certainly you can apply the exact same thing to this. And in fact, that's part of the 
attempt to give somebody, uh, you know, a limited amount to do. So try a thousand and then you do that for a while. Okay. Why don't you up to 2000? And so you're doing it incrementally. And uh, that's a very common way to introduce people to this practice. So. Joe. Yes. Yeah. I had a similar experience to Fred. I, I walked and I worked a little bit and I also kind of it was it was like practice a little bit for you know, when when the retreat's over and and you have to do little things like pause every minute or two just to consciously choose to uh, say the prayer because I might, you know, forget for a few seconds or something. So right. I also found it that good. Yeah. I um, also did some work and I found it valuable too, but it actually made me a little worried about how difficult it's going to be to go back. Because, I mean, I'm looking forward to life and everything, but it's just that. You know, whenever I do a task, I'm so completely absorbed in the task, and and that has always felt like its own meditation. But trying to do the mantra and still attend so fully to task, which is just my way. It's, and I'm trying to imagine how in the world it worked when people line up at my door with questions of this and that, and I'm, you know, running this whole program, and there's just all this stuff all the time. To, to do, and there's kids, you know, traumatized kids, and, and I want to be with them. And that's actually the easiest time to let that love open up and flow. It just happens, but all the mind engagement of all this stuff, I'm just wondering how in the world am I going to do that? Yeah, so first of all, that's that mind that's always trying to go ahead, figure it out before you get there. Uh-huh. So you'll find out how it works. You'll, you'll have to experiment a little bit, you know what I mean? You'll fumble around and, and whatever, and you may discover it has to have a different rhythm, for instance. I don't know. I can't answer the question. But you can answer the question. You will answer the question if you try it. But it's also a good segue to go on with this, because I'm going to now describe what can happen in a mature practice of unceasing prayer. So maybe this will turn out to be your solution. Here's uh, how our pilgrim, in the pilgrim's way, describes how his practice progressed. He says, early one morning, the Jesus prayer woke me up as it were. I started to say my usual morning prayers, but my tongue refused to say them easily or exactly. In other words, he's got some set prayers that he's used to saying that are, you know, his ritual prayers in the morning. So he gets up and the the Jesus prayer is going. It sort of woke him up. And then he tries to go and say his set prayers and there's resistance to that. So he says, um, my whole desire was fixed upon one thing only, to say the prayer of Jesus. And as soon as I went on with it, I was filled with joy and relief. It was as though my lips and my tongue pronounced the words entirely of themselves without any urging from me. So in other words, the prayer assumed a life of its own. Now, he discovered this as he describes it. His starts didn't tell him about it or anything. He just discovered this. But this is something well known in all the bhakti traditions. It's usually called a spontaneous prayer or involuntary prayer. Here's the Sufi sheikh, Javad Nurbakash, and he writes of zikr. When the light of zikr clears the heart of the darkness of agitation, the heart becomes aroused and gradually steals the zikr from the tongue making it its preoccupation. I love that image. 
It's like the heart comes up and takes over the zikr. And notice this description of what the practice of zikr does. It clears the heart of the darkness. Uh, We read Bishop Ignati about how unceasing prayer clears the mind of all these habits of thought and the agitation and all that. So it's the same thing. So the emotional heart's being cleared and the spiritual heart's revealing itself. And it has this clear, calm quality without agitation and all that. And then in that space, the prayer begins to say itself. Now, this is a significant development in the practice for bhaktis uh, for two reasons. First of all, as long as prayer is continuing spontaneously, then you'll be effortlessly established in the remembrance of the divine rather than having to make all this effort. I mean, it's just going on. So as long as you're tuned into it a little bit and as long as you have that sense of the feeling tone of it, Well, there it is. It's reminding you constantly of the divine. This is what Anandamayama says about it. There is all the difference between doing japa and japa occurring of itself. The mind must reach a condition where it cannot remain without the remembrance of God. Now, it's interesting because I assume most of you are struggling with maintaining the remembrance of God. And she's saying there'll come a time when the mind can't get away from the remembrance of God. The second reason that this can be a very significant turning point in the practice is that for many seekers, it's the first really clear experience of actual surrender to the divine. Not a general sense of surrender, but something actually happening that is surrendered. Because when spontaneous prayer takes over, you really don't have the sense I'm doing it. It's the divine doing it. Or you might not know who's doing it. But that full sense of I, the willing agent, is not involved in this. This is what the Hasidic masters say about it. As long as you can still say the words, Blessed art thou, by your own will, know that you have not reached the deeper levels of prayer. Be so stripped of selfhood that you have neither the awareness nor the power to say a single word of your own. So again, if you haven't experienced this, it it at least is giving you a sense of where this practice is going. Has anybody had that experience? Even briefly, you know, it's not like a one or the other thing. It can take over for a while and then Come back, Peggy. Well, I've had this experience for a long time, but it, um, like when I wake up in the morning and uh, my mantra will just be going, or sometimes during the day I just notice that it starts up, but I don't feel like someone else is saying it. I mean, I feel like it's my, it's, it's like my thought, but I haven't decided to think it. <laughs> you know, I mean, but it, it feels personal. It feels like it's there, you know, and, and it's kind of a rhythm. And right. then it'll just go away and then we'll come back. Well, you have the experience of the spontaneity of it, but you still have a sense of self in there. Yeah, I think, um, Again, you know, it's not like there's either or. There are gradations and degrees of this. So if you were completely into this practice and this happened, you wouldn't have the sense that you were doing it. Yes, and I might be, you know, in the middle of teaching or something. So I'm very much aware of myself um, in, in the classroom, but then also 
I'm aware that there's this mantra going on in the background. Mm-hmm. I've never paid attention really to it that much. I just know that well, ah, happening. Okay. But I don't really, um, I mean, I don't do anything with it or... You know what I mean? Yes, what you should do is let it remind you of the beloved. So it triggers devotion. Yes, exactly right. Well put. I want to ask one other thing before we move on. Peggy, how long have you been doing a mantra practice? Um, about 25 years. Okay. So in about 25 years, you too will have the mantra start up on you when you're teaching a class or something like that. (laughs) No, it's very important to know this. You know, any of these practices, if you've done them a lot before, then uh, you'll be having experiences that everybody else will turn around and get all envious and say, how could that be happening to her, you know, when you've just been doing it for two days? I mean... (laughs) (laughs) So... Okay. All right. Um, Now, at an even deeper level, you may come to experience your bodily functions as fused with the prayer and even being the prayer, in which case the words become superfluous. So here's an example of this. This is uh, Mir Valudin. He's a a Sufi I've quoted you from before. And he's talking about um, the Sufi practitioner of zikr, and it's um, a dakar. Is that how you pronounce the one who does it, Abdullah? Yeah, well, it's um, dakar. Dakar. (laughs) P.H. And that's what I have trouble with. (laughs) Vicar. So the vicar and the (laughs) vicar. Okay. Maybe just stick to practitioners. (laughs) Yeah, I I think I will. Anyway, this is what he says. Now listen to this. The practitioner should try his utmost to attain perfection in this zikr. And perfection is attained when respiration itself becomes the practitioner without the volition and consciousness of the practitioner. So if you're doing this coordinated with the breath, which this particular zikr is done with, And you do it, and then, again, you don't have the sense you're doing it. The breath is the practice. Or the prayer may become integrated with the beating of your heart, which is what happened to our pilgrim. Here's what he says. After no great lapse of time, I had the feeling that the prayer had, so to speak, by its own action, passed from my lips to my heart. That is to say, it seemed as though my heart, in its ordinary beating, began to say the words of the prayer within, at each beat. Thus, for example, one, Lord, two, Jesus, three, Christ, and so on. I gave up saying the prayer with my lips. I simply listened carefully to what my heart was saying. In this blissful state, I passed more than two months of the summer. You know, I read you a quote the other night from Wally Shore, who said, you know, open your ears and hear the wind is saying, Om Namah Shivaya, the water is saying, Om Namah Shivaya, and all that. She's talking about this. Not just a bodily function, but it's the sense that the whole world is saying mantra. And it doesn't mean she goes out at night and she listens closely to the wind and she hears imaginary voices in the wind whispering, you know, like sometimes you can hear. 
It means the sound of the wind itself is mantra. The sound of the wind itself is the beloved. The water, the falling rain, that's the mantra. You can get to the point where here you're having trouble sustaining the mantra, paying attention to it, listening. You can get to the point where you can't get away from it. Every sound is mantra. Every sound is remembrance of the beloved. This is tying in back to what we were talking about. Everything becomes a divine self-disclosure. So whatever sound you're hearing, you're hearing the sound of the beloved. Whatever sight you're seeing, you're seeing the sight of the beloved. Whatever you're tasting, you're tasting the beloved. So again, you see how a practice begins with a narrow focus and concentration and opens up. Opens up. But you've got to pass through the eye of that needle to get there. And if you start to experience some of these things we've been talking about, you're going to end up feeling like Lali Shori when she says, eating without the name of Shiva, drinking without the name of Shiva, sleeping without the name of Shiva, living without the name of Shiva, are all just a waste of energy. So, let us continue practicing. We'll do a round of... uh, unceasing prayer, and then when we leave here, try to keep it going, and then try to continue at night as you're falling asleep. And if you wake up, start it going in the middle of the night, going back to sleep. In the morning, see if you can hear it as you're waking up, like our pilgrim did. And so just as much as possible, you can stay in touch with it And most important, in touch with that sense of devotion and love and longing, even if it's just embers glowing, that's fine. That's the most important thing, as much as possible, to just keep that going. Okay? You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you're thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and practices.